cancer journey is unique for everyone. It is time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to episode 16 of the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast. I am Jen Cochran. This week, my guest is Carol Stitza. She became a certified business, life, and leadership coach after coming through a full recovery of stage 3 uterine cancer. The scare of the unknown of such a diagnosis refocused her in a way that rocked her world, and she left behind the idea of a corporate position for the freedom of self-employment so she could be present for her family, life, and the fun adventures that show up on a daily basis. Life is indeed short, and we are all called to make the most of it. Carol's goal is to live up to that as consistently as possible. As a coach, she tells people that she can be the architect of their confidence, but she's not their therapist. And she jokes that she even may be allergic to wallowing. Welcome, Carol. Thank you. I'm super excited to have you here today. I would love for you to share your journey with uterine cancer. Sure. It's just what everybody wants to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's one of those things that it's not normally found early, right? It's not normally found until you're like 70 or it's not normal to have it early. So that may have been why it was so hard to get a diagnosis. So when I was, I would say 49 and started having premenstrual upheavals, it was classified as normal. And I said, I don't think this is normal. Like if this is normal, this new normal sucks. So I was patient. I continued to have these horrible, like being in a restaurant and suddenly have to leave the restaurant with a jacket around me. Just like in high school, when you first had these things and you didn't know what to do with them, they were big and they were bad. And it was just unnerving to not have control. So I find I became anemic and did they think about doing anything then? No, I kept asking. It turns out that my doctor who I really loved and she was actually a PA. So it was a whole clinic of PAs who I had no reason not to trust. They are normally in the trenches, no different than the doctors and sometimes a better ear, but she was of a different culture. And I learned that uterine cancer is very Caucasian oriented. So it never occurred to her that there'd be something different about this than the people she sees all the time suffering from premenopausal challenges. When I became anemic, I got concerned. And the whole time I keep saying, I think something's really wrong. I really have a feeling something's wrong. I finally made an appointment with somebody who was different. I said, I just, I need to go to somebody else. And when I did, she says, well, let's put you on the pill. I'm like, I will try anything and everything. And when I was put on the pill, all of a sudden the things that were coming out of me were green. And I was like, well, see, I told you something was wrong. Yes, now we think you're right. Thank you. So being a self-advocate is a big deal. Trust your gut. Change doctors if you need to for a second opinion early if you want. We did then do the wand uh, ultrasound where they go in and kind of look at the perimeters and they, oh, your uterus is angry. I just wanted to go, really? No. The green was definitely not a Not normal, right? So I become an alien. So they go, well, we're going to send you to a specialist and we'll go from there. Thank you. Now I could have pushed my insurance to go to a specialist sooner. I think I may have been conditioned. We were military and in the military, prior military. So I'd been out, but not out for very long. And in the military, you always had to have a referral. You had to have a chain of people moving you along. It wasn't like I ever had the prerogative, like, I don't like you. I'm going to call somebody different. No. So some of this was conditioning and that was unfortunate. So when I did get to see the specialist, she goes, let's do an ablation. This will, you know, it's this wonderful little sheet that goes in your uterus and microwaves everything and makes the little lining go away and it's supposed to make your uterus happy again. So, but they also do a DNC when they do that, clear everything out, do the ablation, you're done. So I had that done on September 25th. And the very next day I get a call going, we're sorry. 
we found signs of cancer. We're hoping we've caught it early. We're hoping for cancer stage one, which means we've encapsulated it and, and we're good to go. Meantime, they were telling me all the other things they found in my uterus. I was like a, a regular zoo gone wild. I had cysts on the outside and cysts on the inside and just all these little polyps and all the pictures. And I was like, I don't care. Just make it all go away. I don't even look down there if I don't have to. And I'm really glad I'm not that flexible. We're good. So I was scheduled for a complete hysterectomy at that point because anytime they show cancer, they do that. And I was put in touch with one of the very top GYN oncologists in our area, Dr. Garge, who is fabulous. And she uses the Da Vinci robot, which I had done a paper on in school, ironically. So I knew all about it. And I was like, sweet. And if, for those who have not ever had anything done with a Da Vinci robot, it's a very interesting procedure. You are laid on a table with a, a lovely robot that looks like that stethoscope with pointers, like you had in science class. And they tilt your head down because the best way to reach your lower organs is to shift your gravitational pull and pull your stomach kind of towards your chest so that everything that's clinging to the insides is easily accessible. And they go through your belly button and they go through two slits on either hip and they go through and detach your ovaries and your uterus and just everything slips right out when they right side you. But in the meantime, they do take lymph node stagings because anytime they have cancer, they'll do that automatically. And October 23rd, uh, my daughter had flown in to be with us to read the test. My son was too far away and we got the results. And unfortunately it was stage three. Stage one is encapsulated. Stage two is outside the uterus. Stage three is when it's gone to the lymph nodes. Stage four is when it's metastasized and there's no stage five unless they have one like a playground in heaven, maybe. Stage three was quite serious and I was angry that we could have caught this if people had listened to me earlier, if maybe I'd been my own better advocate. But the biggest moment was walking out of that office and I just had to hold onto the wall and started to cry a little bit because the thought, and this is so vain, the thought of losing my hair meant that the world would know that I'm, I'm in the fight of my life. And so much of us would just like to hunker down and fight that with our families and not have be an outward symbol. And it wasn't the fact that I didn't look forward to short hair someday. It was the inability to control the message of the state of my life to others. And that vulnerability was a little bit more than I could handle at that moment. And I'm one of these people that really moves forward. Like I'm, I'm allergic to wallowing almost like, Oh my God, just move forward. And my, my son had driven, my husband had driven his car. I had driven my car with my daughter and she's sitting there in the car, very silent. And I knew that she probably felt very helpless. And I said, here are the numbers. Please start calling. We need to find a lab. We need to find a place to have chemo. We need to, and I knew giving her a job just would make her get to do something, um, which helped immensely. So the chemo started November 13th. Um, we did plan a family trip uh, for Thanksgiving so we could all be together. And ironically, I didn't lose my hair until the week after. But prior to doing chemo, you have to have a port put in. And I think I remember crying on the table. And the guy goes, oh, you don't need to cry. I said, no, it's real. Now it's gotten real. Yeah. It's really real. And you're about to cut into me and this is the beginning and I can't control this journey and you're fighting for control. So we had a friend who has the BRAC gene who has lost her mother to 
both ovarian and breast cancer. And she was very instrumental in tapping us into research about what we could control, which I knew at this point I could control what I did with my body activity-wise, meditation to get the stress away, to allow your brain uh, the opportunity to breathe and your body to heal. And she tapped us into new research about diet. So I knew that all I could do was my change. I could control my attitude. I control my stress. I can control my food. I can control my activity. And the rest, you keep hoping. You can control all of the other stuff that's going on. So we got together as a family for Thanksgiving, and the pictures looked normal, which was nice. A week later, though, as we are commonly familiar with, suddenly all the hair decides to go on vacation, decides to you know, leave in groups. You know, like big buses going through Italy, <laughs> just leaving. Yeah, and, my uh, trash can looked like cousin it. Yeah, so I called my husband, and I was in tears, and I said, okay, tonight we're doing shots and shaving. And he goes, really? And I said, yep, because I'll need one when you shave my head. And the neighbors let us borrow their clippers, and we pulled out the tequila because we're Texans. And... <laughs> It, that's how we uh, made light of a very hard moment. And he was very sweet uh, about it. And I know it was hard for him too, but that's why we had the fun saying, shots and shaving, <laughs> to just try and make a memory that we wouldn't be uh, attached to tears too much. So things went forward. I did a lot of meditating. I was trying to work part-time for a virtual consulting firm, and my performance started to slip. The chemo brain was really real. I was also in my master's program and trying to learn statistics. It's a lot like going to school drunk. You know what happened, but the, the little details are really fuzzy, so I did require a little bit more help after the treatment had ended. The lesson I learned on how to handle your very cold head in the winter was don't go shopping for a wig when you still have hair because it won't fit and it will flop around on your head like you bought the wrong size that I, ha I had already done that. I I picked out a wig when I had hair and tried it on so it didn't fit and so I hated wearing it. So I would wear a hat. Thank good it was, it was winter and I could wear kind of like a ski little found one that had a little bit base. I wore that a lot and I also had to fight with the doctors so that I could go on vacation with my family because we were going to Elevation in Breckenridge. And he goes, well, we don't think you should go. And I said, you don't fight cancer to not go be with your family. So we need an oxygen tank. I need a prescription for oxygen. I need whatever you need to give me to make this work so that I can be there every moment that I have. I don't know what the future holds. We're going on this trip. And it was quite interesting, to say the least, about getting oxygen delivered, although they deliver it now all the time. Now there are oxygen bars. Right. Right. At the time, there weren't. So I got oxygen delivered. We did learn, much to the wonderful benefit of my children, that an oxygen tank in the room is, a, is great for hangovers. So when I would shower, they would fight over who got to use the oxygen tank to uh, appease the night before when they were all out on the town celebrating their day of skiing. So we did have good memories in all the weirdness. The hard part was I had started to develop neuropathy of my feet. And I, I think now for quite a few people who suffer neuropathy, there are now treatments about keeping cold pads on, on your hands and your feet and the places that neuropathy has a tendency to go, which is the farthest of your um, digits first. And you'd think in winter, 
that'd be fine. But I had kept my feet warm all the time because I was cold natured. So the neuropathy got a little bit bad, but my numbers are really good. So they actually allowed me to stop chemo one treatment shy of the full dose because my numbers had never wavered. So my CA125 was always a four. And they said, that's just miraculous. I don't know what you're doing, but I think when I got the flu, it was a six and it just stayed at a four and it has stayed at a four the whole time. So they felt very confident that because my numbers had never wavered from the very beginning, that not only did the surgery probably take all the cancer, whatever treatment I was going through seemed to have gotten rid of anything else. Yeah, that's a very low number. Yeah. To start so, with. So that that is a miraculous, miraculous yeah. number for sure. I felt very blessed that that was the, the case. And I said, here's what I'm doing. I'm taking it very seriously. And so they were like, okay, whatever you're doing, keep doing. So we are 90% vegan and the rest 10% fun. According to the research, we're vegans who suck at it basically. But we do try really hard, eat as clean as possible, keep the negative stress out of our life. There's positive stress and negative stress. We know this. The things I can control, I get it. Things I can't, I don't worry about. But at the end, I still had to get convinced to take radiation. I was not really happy about taking radiation. So I ended my treatments in February. I literally had to go see a Harvard specialist to have them talk me into radiation. At the moment, I can't recall why I had this hang up. I think it was the fear of the unknown, the fear of what radiation in your body could do. I had a friend whose mother was dying of sinus cancer that was created from radiation for acne back in the day. And I'm like, what are we doing? I, I get your logic. So I, I went and talked to somebody who, not at Harvard, they now were located in DC, but she was a specialist on my cancer and radiation. And I said, you need to really tell me exactly why I need to do this. I finally, after all the stories, I said, here's my situation. If you were me, would you still do this? Because I'm not convinced I need it. She had a compelling argument. So I agreed. (sighs) Radiation. uh, So I told people that chemo was like getting slowly poisoned to death. And radiation is like somebody zapping your batteries every day. And you're clinging to the rest of that energy until you just don't care. The positive side of going through radiation for me was it made me at my most vulnerable so that I could understand what I never wanted to do again. We mutually agreed that the company I was working for was not working out. I didn't like what I was doing. My performance was suffering, but I knew why I didn't fight for that job. The other second positive was it gave me access to a life coach as part of my recovery. I didn't think I needed one until my first session when I was blubbering all over her couch. And I thought it was so insightful. Well, they first, they made you go see a social worker as part of the requirement. And so I did. And of course, I'm like, I don't don't need any services. I'm fine. Two questions in, the social worker had me in tears. I'm fine. I need something. Okay. It was interesting that you become very guarded and you feel shielded and you feel as if you can do it until someone tries to help and they mean it and you see yourself falling apart because you know you need it. That was a big aha moment for me is that the tougher the person is, the more they probably need a hug, a hand, or just someone to say, 
I'm just going to hang here and ask you questions to learn about you. If you need anything else, great. If you don't, that's fine. But halfway through that, she goes, I'd like to give you this woman's name. Please go talk to her. Okay, (laughs) I'll go. And that life coach really helped me grapple with the what ifs. What if I don't live? What if I do live? Oh crap, if I live, what am I going to do? And I didn't understand how valuable it was to have this objective outside neutral force who had no stake in my game asking me questions or letting me ask the questions to the universe and use a whiteboard and use post-it white paper and just vomit all my fears and concerns out into the world in a way that wasn't burdening the people who loved me, who wanted to see me healthy and happy, who probably didn't want to see me falling apart. And that was really insightful for me to go through that. Did it give me any of these big culminating aha moments? Not as far as what to do if I didn't, you know, go to heaven. It was that freedom to just unleash all those fears and let someone have safe space for them to hang out there, dance around enough for me to weed out the ones that weren't really true fears. They were just, you know, ganging up and realize that most of my fears were very unfounded, that most of them were very fictitious stories I'd had in my head, the things that we, you know, try and create and basically come out of that celebrating gratitude And knowing that whatever I was going to do next needed to be very different than anything I had been doing that got me to that point, which then made me question why I was finishing my master's. But I did finish my master's. Um, And my master's was in industrial organizational psychology. That's a mouthful. We call it IOPsych for short. And it's the study of how people can work better together. So I wasn't off target. I was on the right target, but I didn't know how to really implement it. And my background was HR and I wanted to kind of go through that. So that started the journey to what I do now, but it still was a journey that due to the stories and traumas of my life before that didn't make me wake up and say, whoa, I'm alive. It literally made me wake up and say, why the heck am I not dead? (laughs) And that's a very different statement. Absolutely. Very curious, like, okay, if I'm not dead, then maybe I'm not listening well enough to what I'm supposed to be doing, and I'm still here for a reason, not just to help the people that I love in their life, but to do something as to represent why I'm still here. And that was a little heavy to play with, still playing with that one. It's really interesting how I think this journey really puts us in a place where we're able to break out of expectation. Oh yeah. And in breaking out of expectation, we start to realize all the places that we've been making decisions or we think we're choosing things, but we're not really choosing them. There's some expectation that's sort of being projected on us that we're making that, you know, quote unquote choice Mm -hmm. from that place of, of other people's expectations. And then we have a journey like this. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Am I going to do I? Does that thing that you want me to do need to be done? Right. Cause I don't really have time to do that. And I'm not sure I want to reprioritize my whole life for this random thing you decided is really important for me. 
But when we start to look at all the places we were doing that before, it's really eye-opening. So I want to talk a little bit about that when we come back from the break, but we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, uh, we'll dig into some of these really juicy topics a little bit more. Yummy. Okay. We'll be right back. Enjoying the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast? Come on over to the Facebook group where you can join the community and participate in the conversation during the week. I hope to see you there. Now back to the show. Hi, I'm back with Carol, and we have been talking about her journey with uterine cancer. It's such an interesting journey that we go on. We have to deal with the perspectives of our healthcare providers and the perspectives of other people. And then we've got our own perspectives that come in and create these interesting truths, which we we find they may or may not actually be true. I'm really curious, your initial feelings around losing your hair, that being a, an indicator to others of the journey that you were on. It's so interesting to me. I was at a chamber event and I had, when I went through my process, I wore hats. Mm-hmm. I lost my hair pretty quickly. I shaved it off fairly early because I was just coming out and it was cousin it. Yeah. And <laughs> So I had shaved it off, had that buzz cut for a while. There are days where I'm like, oh, maybe I could do that again. That that wasn't so bad. Like it was really easy to get ready in the morning. Yeah, really. <laughs> Great. And I'm used to having long, you know, long curly hair. And I wore hats. So I had many, many hats. One of the ways that my my mom supported me in the journey was we got online and we ordered like a bunch of hats. I had hats to go with every outfit. It was crazy. The number of hats that I have. I love it. And I like hats and I look good in hats and I I must look good in hats because later in my process, after I was sort of out of chemo and I had gone, I had continued to go to things at the chamber and breakfast and all of those things. And someone said to me, I had no idea that you had cancer. I just saw you liked fun hats. That's right. Like every yeah. time I saw you, you had like some fun hat that matched mm-hmm. your outfit. And I had no idea that mm-hmm. you didn't have hair. <laughs> <laughs> Which was hilarious because they were just regular, like they were hats. I mean, they they were hats from a place that specialized in those kind of hats, but they were hats. Cool hat. So it was just very interesting. So I I would love to hear how how that kind of played out for you and how how you experienced that through your process. Well, I wore a very comfy hat. So they were the hats that you wear like after a day of skiing and just a, a beanie or something because you get cold. Your head gets cold. True. Uh, I did learn you know, the downside of buying a wig before you lose your hair. It doesn't fit. And then you try it. It's itchy. Even if you have a little skull cap to help your wig. So I didn't enjoy wearing them. I wore them mainly to make other people feel comfortable so that we didn't have to deal with that conversation. Like, oh, you know, or the look. And, and we know the look because we're guilty of sometimes giving it to somebody else. It catches us off guard. Like, oh, I, God, I know how that, they must be at that point, right? And you are sympathetic, but at the same time, you don't want to be intrusive. And sometimes they're having a great hat on or sometimes they're not. And you're just letting them be through their day, knowing what it felt like to be stared at or looked at empathetically. And my husband would argue that me wearing a wig made me feel comfortable. And I said, no, no. It's like wearing high heels. No, no. I was wearing it so I didn't have to deal with the discomfort of others. And that made me more comfortable. So in a roundabout way, wearing a wig was 
on that note, what I found the most fun was when my hair started to grow back. It suddenly grew back with curls in the back, which I'd never had because I got really straight, limp hair. And it grew back very dirty blonde. I've always kind of had the dirty blonde roots. And at the end, it got really blonde. So one day I just took some frosting kit and I just frosted all the tips and spiked the hair straight up. And I loved it. (laughs) And I was like, ooh, I could be that chick. That's awesome. And I rocked. It. I love the short hair. And then when it started to get a little longer, and as long as the curls were there, I was having a great time with it. But the moment it started to get kind of out of whack, and then I went and looked at what it would cost to get my hair cut every 10 days. And I was like, oh, I'm way too lazy for that. Huh. Maybe I'll just let it grow. We'll see what happens. I'll get it shaped, you know. Um, and I kept it as short and sassy as I could with shape until I was like, no, I, I miss my ponytail. Okay, fine. I'll just be lazy and let it all grow out. Um, but it was a fun experiment. And Really, possibly the reason why I still don't have short hair is my husband really likes long hair. I've always had long hair. He missed my long hair. But if something were to happen to man, that man's eyesight, I mean, <laughs> my hair back short. I'm not sure. I enjoyed the short, sassy, fun, bleach tips, straight up, rocking different hair. And it was so easy to get ready. Oh my God. Oh, so easy. Good. I actually found I had a little bit of a challenge with my hair growing back. I had watched a lot of people, unfortunately, that have gone through this journey. And so my husband and I got married in the middle of my chemo. We'd been together for a long time, but we weren't married. So we had gotten married in the middle of my chemo, but then we had planned a trip. So I finished chemo December 2nd, and then we had planned a a cruise. He didn't want to do a big thing. He likes to, you know, blend into the woodwork, which was kind of hilarious because we were driving back from my grandmother's services. We had told our families that we were going to get married and we were going to do simple justice of the peace and then do a cruise for the parents. Um, and, And his mom said, oh, can I invite your aunt and uncle? And So then my husband said, oh, we'll have to invite your aunt and uncle. And then my cousin would want to come. And I said, well, we can invite the siblings, you know, whether they decide to come or not. And he was like, no, too many, too many. I was like, okay, that's like 15 people. (laughs) And it's not going to change what we do. It's fine. You'll be okay. But I was expecting the beginning of March to have hair. Oh, okay. Because December 2nd. And our ceremony was on March 4th. Our like. I expected you to have hair. No. I I'm like I have the smallest amount of peach fuzz and I couldn't find a hat that I liked. Oh no. That went with my dress. So I was like, screw it, I'm not wearing a hat. And I was like, I have this just this little bit of hair, which a girlfriend of mine, my husband is blonde and doesn't really have a lot of hair. And one of my girlfriends was like, I love it. You have matching haircuts. I love it. <laughs> love it. But I really expected my hair to come back and what ended up being the case was much later, much more hindsight, I discovered the tamoxifen prevented me from my hair growing back. So you, you bring up an interesting point. Tamoxifen does stay in your system a long time. And I started to read up on that because I was to the point that even though I didn't have surgery on, you know, I didn't have breast cancer, I had uterine cancer, suddenly I couldn't raise my arms over my shoulder height. I couldn't put a sports bra on over my head. I couldn't put a shirt on over my head. 
And so I was researching and they said it's tamoxifen. So I literally went and did cupping, which was miraculous. So if you are going through any type of joint pain coming out of any type of medical treatment, and cupping is what they you saw in the Olympics, you know, Michael Phelps had the little brown bruises. Um, it's not painful to get it done, but what it does is it starves the oxygen, you know, from the top of your surface to pull out the toxins from within the joint and around the bone. And then your body, that bruises from your body making you're getting rid of it. And it was wonderful. Just within two treatments, I could lift my arms over my head without pain. And it was wonderfully relieving of that stickiness that hurt. I did start to really understand holistic medicine a lot more. Reiki was another practice that helped me understand that all the toxins were really challenging my kidneys and my liver. And the Reiki person I uh, had access to would do all their work. I, I, of course, I have my eyes closed. I have no idea, but they would tell me afterwards, she goes, all my energy ended up needing to gravitate towards the lower organs that is ciphering through all of your treatment. It was exhausting for them, this energy exchanging practice. I remember feeling very relaxed during Reiki. It's a hands-off type of energy exchange, which for those people would think it's all woo-woo-ish. But after you've experienced it, it's very European. The Europeans are so much more advanced in the holistic medicines and the Asians for that matter. But it's really worth paying attention to, to understand where your energy is being consumed and draining you that they can actually start to influence that in a way that relieves your body of the stress you didn't even know it was going through. Because I had, I was more relaxed and I had more energy the next day than I had had in weeks. And I wouldn't say that was coincidental just from the nature of the patterns I had been living my life. So yeah, understanding what gets in the way of health, healthy return to normal is not talked about at all. No, not at all. Here's the consequences. Here's what you do next. There is not a next step program once you get released from their prescriptive action plan. It's up to you to really reach out and become educated, interested, connected, exploring, curious, all the things that you weren't used to doing before, but now you are suddenly because you know there's a better way. And I found that to be a good challenge in a way and really annoying in another way that I had to then at the end be another self-advocate and use my insurance money or my own money if the insurance didn't recognize it to go find those holistic things that ease your journey back to being you. And that's a big part of coming out on the other side to feel whole again, you still have to work for it. Absolutely. And you know, there's no manual. There's no manual that says tamoxifen causes these particular side effects. I mean, yes, there are some side effects that are acknowledged, but there are a lot of things that as you talk to more people, people will say, oh, I had a lot of brain fog. You talked about trying to learn statistics. Yeah. I was a technical project manager for two decades. Mm -hmm. I have done tons of custom software development where I did everything from the business analysis through the training. And the only thing I didn't do was actually write the software, the programming. Like I literally did the whole thing, documenting software and figuring out software programs from scratch without a manual is like my superpower. And I sat down to rewrite my website, which is a lot easier than it was when I had done it like five years prior when I rebuilt my new site. It's so plug and play, like any human almost can just sit down and do it. 
Wow. There's a lot of templates and things that are helpful. And I had been struggling. I said to my husband, wow, it's really weird. Like this is so much harder than it was before. And I had no concept mm. that it was my brain not functioning yeah. in the manner that I was used to. Yeah. I did not know that it was chemo brain at the time. So I was really hard on myself. Like, why can't I get this? Why is this poor friend of mine working doubly hard to, ha why are these concepts? I mean, it sounds logical. It sounds like I should get it. And the memory and the, it was, I, you couldn't make a C in the program I was on. I was, I was in school on a scholarship with pay. So I couldn't make a C. You just couldn't. It's the only B I made was that statistics. And let me tell you, I worked so hard, <sighs> but I looking back when I realized it was chemo brain, when I finally realized it, that's when I called the school and I said, I need a medical leave yeah. from the next semester, which I had, they had never gotten. I was the first medical leave request. And I said, they said, well, I, we've never had that before. I said, well, good. I'll be the first. At this point, you start bucking the system yeah. any chance you get because you're in the fight for your life and they're worried about you being the first to ever want out for a semester. And I was like, and they go, but yeah, you won't graduate your class. We're geographically dispersed anyway. It's a remote program. It's okay. It was just so um, interesting to have to shove people out of their current perspective and shed light on the reality of the moment when you're having that conversation. And then they go, oh, well, yeah. Okay. I said, I can't think straight. I've been trying. I've been going through chemo. Oh, really? I was like, do you guys not talk to each other? Is not my record somewhere? Uh, yeah. Help me out here. I think by just the whole story of having to be an advocate and finally getting proven right when it was almost too late and then getting to productively use the research that was put in front of me and fight for what I knew was going to be helpful for me made me kind of this accidental advocate for others. And I was able to share my story about a few years after that, when I was sitting around the lake house with a friend and her friend was visiting and I got a call a couple of days later and she says, Thank you for telling me about that story. I just called and made a point with my doctor. And a week later, she says, I was insistent that they went in and look. And she goes, they found stage one, uterine cancer. And wow. your story made me listen to my gut because it had been bugging me. And they said, and the doctor even called me her back and said, I apologize. I didn't believe you. And so we become these storytellers, not as a proclamation or a foreboding or rule better watch out. It's listen to your gut. Yeah. Be your advocate. Be your own warrior for health. You can read your body. They cannot. If something's really not right, it's not right. And just, I, I don't want to advocate just going to a doctor until you hear what you want to hear. That's not my point. Right. It's going to the point where you change doctors until someone you feel will listen to you and do the test to prove you right or wrong. Either way, you'll get validated that either you were just on a hunch and scared and they have the proof there right in front of you to alleviate your fears or they'll be able to figure out what's going on so that you know you are listening to your body in the right way. Absolutely. And my story is somewhat similar in that I had a little thing in the back of my mind saying, go get a mammogram, go get a mammogram, go get a mammogram. And I'd asked for the order several months before I got it. But the doctor's office told me that I couldn't get it until I saw my doctor for my physical, which that, is not true. Right. It's not. And I think it depends on who, you know, 
your doctor is. It depends on the patterns that they have, the insurance you have, their assumptions. I, I think now I'm stronger in supporting people, men or women, that if you ever have an inkling something's not right, just go. Yeah, It's worth it to go, to just go and have the test, look at the technology, the research, anything that's available to you. You do, you do maintenance on your car more than your body. Absolutely. So if you're going to do maintenance on your car and not maintenance on, maintenance on yourself, then your values are in the wrong place because you can't take the car with you. Right. You can get a new car. You, can get you a new can't car. get a new body. Right. So I think we've just lost perspective of, well, I think we're learning now that longevity is, is a real goal to have. Gone are the days when, you know, you turn 65 and keel over. So, although frighteningly, some of those days seem to be returning, which makes me question every time I see, like we've had, what, two strokes in young, what I consider 51, I consider 51 to be a young person. So today's technology, it is, that is young. That literally is the halfway point from what you're capable of living if you understand how to treat your body right. And there are people who just don't want to hear it. No different than anything else you don't want to hear, right? Sadly, we're going to see cases like that because if you think about it, the change of the longevity awareness has only been in the last 15 years, 10 to 15 years, Mm -hmm. that we can legitimately figure out ways to live with our mind and our body intact for a long time. You know, Doris Day just passed at 97. And what people forget is that their family traditions aren't always the way to be a hundred, not a general statement for everybody's health patterns. It's here's what you're capable of. If you follow these other health patterns, if you don't want to, well, don't, don't expect to live that long. Our preservatives in our food is a big deal. We know this. It's been proven time and time again, but people who don't want to hear it won't hear it. It's true. I know. It's true. My grandmother lived to be a hundred and a half. Wow. And she took very little medication and she worked until she was 73. And I think that says something for being focused and active, right? Yeah, absolutely. She was an avid reader. When her eyesight started to fail, we actually transitioned her to like a CD player. When she stopped driving, the library would deliver her books on CD-ROM every other week. And they would spend time with her and ask what she liked and talk about the books. And so she could still engage in that conversation and keep her mind active. And and she had an active you know, social life and all those things just make such a huge difference to our longevity. And there's a, there's a genetic component too. Interestingly enough, because I had this very weird diagnosis before the age of 50, they literally did all the historic markers, genetic markers to make sure this wasn't something. See, my mom died when I was six and so did her mom in the same car accident. And so I had no female genetics direct to follow. And my father's mother had died the five months before that event. Wow. My life, I only had some cousins and some aunts that were on different sides of the family. So they did the historic genetic markers to see if my daughter needed to worry about anything because they were so intrigued. But I can tell you my lifestyle prior to that year when things started to go south was very stressful, very hectic. And we were empty nesters suddenly with the ability to have wine and prosciutto for dinner. 
you know, not the healthiest diet, probably, you know, going more on the fun, decadent food because we could and less on the healthy vegetables and salads because we're both working. We'd come home, we'd nibble, have a glass of wine, watch television, go to bed. It was just, we were always active and very physical, but our diet was taking a very fun adventure down decadent lane. And I had a lot of stress in my life. Stress can be extremely toxic as well. And we just are are not present to the toll that it ultimately takes. Well, and it was a stress that I was allowing to happen without being cognizant of evaluating, is that the stress I can control or the stress I can't? The stress you can't is the stories you have in your head. And so it leads to anxiety and the what ifs when in reality, if you could step into a better mindset and saying, only concentrate on what I can control, except I can't control, I can't. It's, it's just detrimental to your health because your body doesn't know the difference between what you can and cannot control. It only will yeah. prepare your body for the stories that are in its head. So the what ifs, it's preparing for. So I was taxing my own body beyond, obviously, what it could handle and living this high life of fun, happy hours because we could. And then when things started to go south, it was like, whoo. And then I didn't feel good, you know, and then you go on this process of nobody believing you and it's natural and you're confused. And it is, it's a a good mix for disaster until you have somebody either on the outside, like encouraging you go to go seek help and be your own advocate or until you just get sick and tired of being sick and tired and send it and, and take some better actions, which is, you know, what I ultimately had. And I really wish I'd done it sooner. Maybe I would have only had stage one, stage two or whatever. So maybe I'm just a slow learner. I don't know. Oh, it, makes you, it makes you really question moving forward how to be quicker. It makes you really time. crazy. Last spring, I was seeing all my medical professionals, my general practitioner, my oncologist, my cardiologist, my GYN. Like I was seeing all my doctors. <clears throat> I had all these things going on and my brain fog was really bad and it was full of fluid and I had rashes on me and I just, I was screaming at every healthcare professional I had. And I felt like a raving lunatic when I finally put it together for myself, what was happening. And I was allergic to the medication that I had been put on. It had gluten in it and I'm celiac. And I had been very clear upfront that I had celiac. And since I made that discovery, I have helped at least six people that I know of make that same discovery for themselves and f- figure out every single one of them had a different prescribing doctor. Interesting. Every single one of them had said, I have this intolerance. Yeah. It appears to be an almost an unknown thing. Or it's one of those, yeah, we know about it, but we don't have an option. We don't have an alternative yet. And or, we don't think it's that significant for you. You know, you can attest to the, the torture that you're then putting the rest of your immune, immune system through at the same time you're trying to help your immune system. It's a catch-22. Yeah, I actually ended up, for me, the result was that I had no immune system. My immune system had gotten knocked back by chemo and it wasn't returning. My hair wasn't growing. It was growing, but it was growing super crazy slow. And I had fallen and dented my leg muscle two years ago. I've been off that medication for nearly a year. That muscle is finally starting to repair itself. Yeah. When you knock out your immune system, you've you've really done it. It's Uh. crazy. And these are the things that we're not really present to. Well, not at the time. And nobody's monitoring it 
unless you've got a healthcare professional that you're part of their caseload, there are programs out there that are nurse advocates for people going through. And I think it's a new segment of healthcare that is being developed because we are too close to the fire to be objective with what's going on with our bodies and our lives. Sometimes you're just trying to struggle through a healthcare advocate is designed to take stock, ask you questions, and then let you know that there's alternatives that you didn't even know to ask about along the way. Right. I've heard of them. I didn't have one, but I had a really good oncology nurse who would ask me things and, and really pointed questions and then say, did you know that we have something for that? No, I did not know that. There are people who are self-advocating within the profession. And there's people who are trying to become advocates and, and we just don't know what we don't know. And it's good to get the word out that if you do get a diagnosis that is scary, to ask your insurance if they they have um, allowances for healthcare caseworkers. Yeah, there are advocates that will help you navigate the process. There are people that will help you take notes so you don't have to worry about doing that while you're in an appointment. It's really heartening to see the growth that's happening in that direction because I think it's really necessary. You know, our healthcare professionals are, they're seeing a lot of people. There's, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that are walking this journey. As patients, we're not in the best position at the time that we're walking this journey. We Most people don't have a lot of information about their condition. Really interesting, you had made the comment about the Da Vinci robot. And it's so interesting to me how many people I talk to who had some detailed knowledge about a component, a seemingly maybe obscure component of their journey. And it's so fascinating to me to see that play out over and over and over again. The universe sent us on this journey, but in a lot of ways, we've got the tools that we need to see it through to the other side. It's an interesting process. Yes, it is interesting that like all people who have a focus, when you're looking for answers, they are made available, access is made available to you. I would encourage everyone to be open, all the information available to you and to not discount even the weirdest ideas that come through your ideas. I mean, when my chiropractor says, I'm going to gift you with a Reiki session, I was like, whatever, I don't think I'd pay for it. But now I'm, I'm understanding where it has its place in holistic medicine. And I was very grateful for that opportunity. So even if people give you something, take them up on it. It's worth your time. It has good intention. It probably might know something you don't know. And that was, I think, the upside of this very weird journey I hope to never repeat. Sometimes I think when we go into a situation like that, Reiki or whatever the case may be, float tanks are becoming really popular as well, that sensory deprivation. It's so interesting to me to see people go into those experiences with no expectation. Exactly. It's when we enter with no expectation that the benefits are that much more impactful. Yes. Because we go in with no expectation. Okay, I'll go do the Reiki thing and see what happens. I don't think anything's going to happen. But then when something, when you feel that energy shift or you feel that lightness or you feel that how you have more energy or, or you sleep better. Yeah. Whatever the, that item is for you, it's like, oh, wow, that it really worked. Like I had no expectation that that was going to work. And wow, I had this great result. And I think that's really powerful. Thank you so, so much. The time, I always say this, the time goes so fast. We have such fascinating conversations. I love the things that come up 
in these conversations. Thank you so much for sharing your story today. Thanks for asking me to share because sometimes I forget that the story has a place. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Such a great conversation today with Carol. We talked about many important topics, the importance of speaking up and advocating for yourself, even if it means seeking a second opinion, limiting the stress we can control and managing the stress we cannot, and the role of alternative interventions to support us during treatment and help us to recover more quickly following treatment. One of the areas that really resonated with me was how we end up managing the many perspectives of the people we encounter on this journey. Our medical professionals, loved ones, friends, basically anyone we cross paths with during this time. For this week's Personal Consciousness Minute, I want to talk about the discomfort of others. The reality is when you go on this journey of a cancer diagnosis, inevitably you have to tell people. However, their response is not really about you. It's about them and everything the word cancer means to them. And sometimes you have to disagree with your team about what is best for you. You are the owner of your body and that creates discomfort. Whether you're dealing with a health crisis or not, there are areas where we find ourselves dealing with the discomfort of others, sometimes even on a regular basis. My question for you this week is what are you doing to not deal with the discomfort of others in your world? Is it contributing to your stress? Is it possible to address the situation and remove it from your world? What action can you take this week to make this an area of stress that you no longer need to manage? Come on over to the Cancer Cliff Notes Facebook group to see my example of an area I needed to manage expectations. And as always, thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you.